Chapter Eleven of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Shantarotwong. A New England Girlhood, outlined from memory by Lucy Larcom. Chapter Eleven, Reading and Studying. My return to Millwork involved making acquaintance with a new kind of machinery. The spinning room was the only one I had hitherto known anything about. Now my sister Emily found a place for me in the dressing room beside herself. It was more airy, and fewer girls were in that room, for the dressing frame itself was a large, clumsy affair that occupied a great deal of space. Mine seemed to me as unmanageable as an overgrown, spoilt child. It had to be watched in a dozen directions every minute, and even then it was always getting itself and me into trouble. I felt as if the half-live creature, with its great groaning joints and whizzing fan, was aware of my incapacity to manage it, and had a fiendish spite against me. I contracted an unconquerable dislike to it. Indeed, I had never liked, and never could learn to like, any kind of machinery. And this machine finally conquered me. It was humiliating, but I had to acknowledge that there were some things I could not do, and I retired from the field, vanquished. The two things I had enjoyed in this room were that my sister was with me, and that our windows looked towards the west. When the work was running smoothly, we looked out together and quoted to each other all the sunset poetry we could remember. Our taste did not quite agree. Her favorite description of the clouds was from Pollock. They seemed like chariots of saints by fiery coursers drawn, as brightly hued as if the glorious bushy golden locks of thousand cherubim had been shorn off. And on the temples hung of morn and even. I liked better a translation from the German beginning. Methinks it were no pain to die on such an eve while such a sky, o'er canopies the west. And she generally had to hear the whole poem, for I was very fond of it. Though the especial verse that I contrasted with hers was, "There's peace and welcome in yon sea of endless blue tranquillity. Those clouds are living things. I trace their veins of liquid gold." And see them silently unfold their soft and fleecy wings. Then she would tell me that my nature inclined to quietness and harmony, while hers asked for motion and splendor. I wondered whether it really were so, but that huge creaking framework beside us would continually intrude upon our meditations and break up our discussions, and silence all poetry for us with its dull prose. Emily found more profitable work elsewhere, and I found some that was less so, but far more satisfactory. As it would give me the openings of leisure which I craved. The paymaster asked when I left, "Going where on can earn more money?" "No," I answered, "I am going where I can have more time." "Ah, yes," he said sententiously, "time is money," but that was not my thought about it. "Time is education," I said to myself, for that was what I meant it should be to me. Perhaps I never gave the wage-earning element in work its due weight. It always seemed to me that the apostle's idea about worldly possessions was the only sensible one. Having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. If I could earn enough to furnish that and have time to study besides, of course we always gave away a little, however little we had. It seemed to me a sufficiency. At this time, I was receiving two dollars a week besides my board. Those who were earning much more and were carefully laying it up did not appear to be any happier than I was. 
I never thought that the possession of money would make me feel rich. It often does seem to have an opposite effect. But then, I never had the opportunity of knowing by experience how it does make one feel. It is something to have been spared the responsibility of taking charge of the Lord's silver and gold. Let us be thankful for what we have not, as well as for what we have. Freedom to live one's life truly is surely more desirable than any earthly acquisition or possession. And at my new work I had hours of freedom every day. I never went back again to the bondage of machinery and a working day thirteen hours long. The daughter of one of our neighbors, who also went to the same church with us, told me of a vacant place in the cloth room where she was, which I gladly secured. This was a low brick building next the counting room, and a little apart from the mills, where the cloth was folded, stamped, and baled for the market. There were only half a dozen girls of us, who measured the cloth and kept an account of the pieces baled and their length in yards. It pleased me to have something to do which required the use of pen and ink, and I think there must be a good many scraps of verse buried among the blank pages of those old account books of that found their way there during the frequent hours of waiting for the cloth to be brought in from the mills. The only machinery in the room was a hydraulic arrangement for pressing the cloth into bales, managed by two or three men, one of whom was quite a poet and a fine singer also. His hymns were frequently in request, on public occasions. He lent me the first volume of Whittier's poems that I ever saw, it was a small book containing mostly anti-slavery pieces. The Yankee Girl was one of them, fully to appreciate the spirit of which it is necessary to have been a working girl in slave labor times. New England womanhood crowned Whittier as her laureate from the day of his heroine's spirited response to the slaveholder. Oh, could ye have seen her, that pride of our girls, arise and cast back the dark wealth of her curls, with a scorn in her eye that the gazer could feel, and a glance like the sunshine that flashes on steel. Go back, haughty southern, go back, for thy gold is red with the blood of the hearts thou hast sold. There was in this volume another poem which is not in any of the later editions, the impression of which, as it remains to me in broken snatches, is very beautiful. It began with the lines, Bind up thy tresses, thou beautiful one, of brown in the shadow and gold in the sun. It was a refreshment and an inspiration to look into this book between my long rows of figures and read such poems as The Angel of Patience, Fallen, Raphael, and that wonderfully rendered Hymn from Lamartine that used to whisper itself through me after I had read it, like the echo of a spirit's voice. When the breath divine is flowing, zephyr-like o'er all the things going, and as the touch of viewless fingers, softly on my soul it lingers, open to a breath the lightest, conscious of a touch the slightest. Then, O oh Father, thou alone, from the shadow of thy throne, to the sighing of my breast and its rapture answerest. I grew so familiar with this volume that I felt acquainted with the poet long before I met him. It remained in my desk drawer for months. I thought it belonged to my poetic friend, the baler of cloth, but one day he informed me that it was a borrowed book. He thought, however, he should claim it for his own, now that he had kept it so long, upon which remark I delivered it to the custody of his own conscience, and saw it no more. One day, towards the last of my stay at Lowell, I never changed my workroom again, this same friendly fellow toiler handed me a poem to read, which someone had sent in to us from the counting-room, with the penciled comment, Singularly Beautiful. It was Poe's Raven, which had just made its first appearance in some magazine. 
It seemed like an apparition in literature, indeed. The sensation it created among the staid, measured lyrics of that day, with its flit of spectral wings and its ghostly refrain of nevermore, was very noticeable. Poe came to Lowell to live a while, but it was after I had gone away. Our national poetry was at this time just beginning to be well known and appreciated. Bryant had published two volumes, and every schoolchild was familiar with his Death of the Flowers and God's First Temples. Someone lent me The Voices of the Night, the only collection of Longfellow's verse then issued, I think. The footsteps of angels glided at once into my memory, and took possession of a permanent place there with its tender melody. The Last Leaf and Old Ironsides were favorites with everybody who read poetry at all. But I do not think we Lowell girls had a volume of Dr. Holmes' poems at that time. The Ladies' Book and Graham's Magazine were then the popular periodicals, and the mill girls took them. I remember that the nuggets I used to pick out of one or the other of them when I was quite a child were labeled with the signatures of Harriet E. Beecher, Father Morris, and Uncle Tim, and others of the delightful Mayflower snatches first appeared in this way. All reading people were supposed to have read, and I recall the pleasure it was to me when one of my sisters came into possession of Knickerbocker's History of New York. It was the first humorous book, as well as the first history, that I ever cared about, and I was pleased enough, for I was a little girl when my fondness for it began, to hear our minister say that he always read Diedrich Knickerbocker for his tired Monday recreation. We were allowed to have books in the clothroom. The absence of machinery permitted that privilege. Our superintendent, who was a man of culture and a Christian gentleman of the Puritan school, dignified and reserved, used often to stop by at my desk in his daily round to see what book I was reading. One day it was Mather's Magnalia, which I had brought from the public library, with a desire to know something of the early history of New England. He looked a little surprised at the archaeological turn my mind had taken, but his only comment was, A valuable old book, that. It was a satisfaction to have a superintendent like him, whose granite principles, emphasized by his stately figure and bearing, made him a tower of strength in the church and in the community. He kept a silent, kindly, rigid watch over the corporation life of which he was the head, and only those of us who were incidentally admitted to his confidence knew how carefully we were guarded. We had occasional glimpses into his own well-ordered home life, at social gatherings, his little daughter was in my infant Sabbath school class from her fourth to her seventh or eighth year. She sometimes visited me at my work, and we had our frolics among the heaps of cloth as if we were both children. She had also the same love of hymns that I had as a child, and she would sit by my side and repeat to me one after another what she had learned, not as a task, but because of her delight in them. One of my sincerest griefs in going off to the West was that I should see my little pupil Mary as a child no more. When I came back, she was a grown-up young woman. My friend Anna, who had procured for me the place and work beside her which I liked so much, was not at all a bookish person, but we had perhaps a better time together than if she had been. She was one who found the happiness of her life in doing kindnesses for others, and in helping them bear their burdens. Family reverses had brought her with her mother and sisters to Lowell, and this was one strong point of sympathy between my own family and hers. It was indeed a bond of neighborly union between a great many households in the young manufacturing city. Anna's manners and language were those of a lady, though she had come from the wilds of Maine, somewhere in the vicinity of Mount Desert, 
the very name of which seemed in those days to carry one into a wilderness of mountains and waves. We chatted together at our work on all manner of subjects, and once she astonished me by saying confidentially, in a low tone, Do you know I am thirty years old? She spoke as if she thought the fact implied something serious. My surprise was that she should have taken me into her intimate friendship when I was only seventeen. I should hardly have supposed her older than myself if she had not volunteered the information. When I lifted my eyes from her tall, thin figure to her fair face and somewhat sad blue eyes, I saw that she looked a little worn, but I knew that it was from care for others, strangers as well as her own relatives, and it seemed to me as if those thirty loving years were her rose garland. I became more attached to her than ever. What a foolish dread it is, showing unripeness rather than use, the dread of growing old. For how can a life be beautified more than by its beautiful years? A living, loving, growing spirit can never be old. Emerson says, Spring still makes spring in the mind when sixty years are told. And some of us are thankful to have lived long enough to bear witness with him to that truth. The few others who measured cloth with us were nice, bright girls, and some of them remarkably pretty. Our work and the room itself were so clean that in summer we could wear fresh muslin dresses, sometimes white ones, without fear of soiling them. This slight difference of apparel and our fewer work hours seemed to give us a slight advantage over the toilers in the mills opposite, and we occasionally heard ourselves spoken of as the cloth-room aristocracy, but that was only in fun. Most of us had served an apprenticeship in the mills, and many of our best friends were still there preferring their work because it brought them more money than we could earn. For myself, no amount of money would have been a temptation, compared with my precious daytime freedom. Whole hours of sunshine for reading, for walking, for studying, for writing, for anything that I wanted to do. The days were so lovely and so long, and yet how fast they slipped away! I had not given up my dream of a better education, and as I could not go to school, I began to study by myself. I had received a pretty thorough drill in the common English branches at the grammar school, and at my employment I only needed a little simple arithmetic. A few of my friends were studying algebra in an evening class, but I had no fancy for mathematics. My first wish was to learn about English literature, to go back to its very beginnings. It was not then studied even in the higher schools, and I knew no one who could give me any assistance in it as a teacher. Percy's relics and Chambers' Cyclopedia of English Literature were in the city library, and I used them, making extracts from Chaucer and Spencer, to fix their peculiarities in my memory, though there was only a taste of them to be had from the cyclopedia. Shakespeare I had read from childhood, in a fragmentary way. The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream and King Lear I had swallowed among my fairy tales. Now I discovered that the historical plays, notably Julius Caesar and Coriolanus, had no less attraction for me, though of a different kind. But it was easy for me to forget that I was trying to be a literary student, and slip off from Belmont to Venice with Portia to witness the discomfiture of Shylock, although I did pity the miserable Jew, and thought that he might at least have been allowed the comfort of his paltry ducats. I do not think that any of my studying at this time was very severe. It was pleasure rather than toil, for I understood only the tasks I liked but what I learned remained with me, nevertheless. With Milton I was more familiar than with any other poet, and from thirteen years of age to eighteen he was my preference. My friend Angeline and I, another of my cloth-room associates, made the Paradise Lost a language study in an evening class, 
under one of the grammar schoolmasters, and I never opened to the majestic lines, high on a throne of royal state, which far outshone the wealth of Ormus and of Ind, or where the gorgeous east with richest hand showers on her king's barbaric pearl and gold. Without seeing Angeline's kind, homely face outlined through that magnificence, instead of the lineaments of the evil angel, by merit raised to that bad eminence, she too was much older than I, and a most excellent, energetic, and studious woman. I wonder if she remembers how hard we tried to get Beelzebub, than whom, Satan except, none higher sat, into the limits of our grammatical rules, not altogether with success, I believe. I copied passages from Jeremy Taylor and the old theologians into my notebooks, and I found them useful even recently in preparing compilations. Dryden and the eighteenth-century poets generally did not interest me, though I tried to read them from a sense of duty. Pope was an exception, however. Aphorisms from the Essay on Man were in common use among us as those from the Book of Proverbs. Some of my choicest extracts were in the first volume of collected poetry I ever owned, a little red Morocco book called The Young Man's Book of Poetry. It was given me by one of my sisters when I was about a dozen years old, who rather apologized for the young man on the title page, saying that the poetry was just as good as if he were not there. And indeed, no young man could have valued it more than I did. It contained selections from standard poets, and choice ones from less familiar sources. One of the extracts was Woodsworth's Sunset Among the Mountains, from the excursion, to read which, however often, always lifted me into an ecstasy. That red Morocco book was my treasure. It traveled with me to the west, and I meant to keep it as long as I lived. But alas! It was borrowed by a little girl out on the Illinois prairie, who never brought it back. I do not know that I have ever quite forgiven her. I have wished I could look into it again, often and often through the years. But perhaps I ought to be grateful to that little girl for teaching me to be careful about returning borrowed books myself. Only a lover of them can appreciate the loss of one which has been a possession from childhood. Young and Cowper were considered religious reading, and as such I had always known something of them. The songs of Burns were in the air. Through him I best learned to know poetry as a song. I think that I heard the Cotter Saturday night and a man's a man for a that more frequently quoted than any other poems familiar to my girlhood. Some of my workfolk acquaintances were regular subscribers to Blackwood's magazine and the Westminster and Edinburgh reviews, and they lent them to me. These, in Maclay's essays, were a great help and delight. I had also the reading of the Bibliotheca Sacra and the New Englander, and sometimes of the North American Review. By the time I had come down to Woodsworth and Coleridge in my readings of English poetry, I was enjoying it all so much that I could not any longer call it a study. A gift from a friend of Griswold's Poets and Poetry of England gave me my first knowledge of Tennyson. It was a great experience to read Locksley Hall for the first time while it was yet a new poem, and while one's own young life was stirred by the prophetic spirit of the age that gave it birth. I had a friend about my own age, and between us there was something very much like what is called a schoolgirl friendship, a kind of intimacy supposed to be superficial, but often as deep and permanent as it is pleasant. Eliza and I managed to see each other every day. We exchanged confidences, laughed and cried together, read, wrote, walked, visited, and studied together. Her dress always had an airy touch, which I admired, although I was rather indifferent as to what I wore myself. But she would endeavor to fix me up tastefully, 
while I would help her to put her compositions for the offering into proper style. She had not begun to go to school at two years old, repeating the same routine of studying every year of her childhood, as I had. When a child, I should have thought it almost as much of a disgrace to spell a word wrong, or to make a mistake in the multiplication table as to break one of the Ten Commandments. I was astonished to find that Eliza and other friends had not been as particularly dealt with in their early education. But she knew her deficiencies, and earned money enough to leave her work and attend a day school part of the year. She was an ambitious scholar, and she persuaded me into studying the German language with her. A native professor had formed a class among young women connected with the mills, and we joined it. We met six or eight of us at the home of two of these women, a factory boarding house in a neat little parlor which contained a piano. The professor was a music teacher also, and he sometimes brought his guitar and let us finish our recitation with a concert. More frequently he gave us the songs of Deutschland that we begged for. He sang the Earl King in his own tongue admirably. We went through Fallen's German grammar and reader. What a choice collection of extracts that reader was! We conquered the difficult gutturals, like those in the numeral Acht und Achtzig, the test of our pronouncing abilities, so completely that the professor told us a native really would understand us. At his request, I put some little German songs into English, which he published as sheet music, with my name. To hear my words sung quite gave me the feeling of a successful translator. The professor had his own distinctive name for each of his pupils. Eliza was naivete from her artless manners, and me he called Etheria, probably on account of my star-gazing and verse-writing habits. Certainly there was never anything ethereal in my visible presence. A botany class was formed in town by a literary lady who was preparing a school textbook on the subject, and Eliza and I joined that also. The most I recall about that is the delightful flower-hunting rambles we took together. The Linnaean system, when in use, did not give us very satisfactory key to the science, but we made the acquaintance of hitherto unfamiliar wild flowers that grew around us, and that was the opening to us of another door towards the beautiful. Our minister offered to instruct the young women of his parish in ethics, and my sister Emily and myself were among his pupils. We came to regard Wayland's moral silence, our textbook, as most interesting reading, and it furnished us with many examples for thought and for social discussion. Carlyle's hero-worship brought us a startling and keen enjoyment. It was lent me by a Dartmouth college student, the brother of one of my roommates, soon after it was first published in this country. The young man did not seem to know exactly what to think of it, and wanted another reader's opinion. Few persons could have welcomed these early writings of Carlyle more enthusiastically than some of us working girls. The very ruggedness of the sentences had a fascination for us, like that of climbing over loose boulders in a mountain scramble to get sight of a wonderful landscape. My roommate, the student's sister, was the possessor of an electrifying new poem, Festus, that we sat up nights to read. It does not seem as if it could be more than forty years since Sarah and I looked up into each other's face from the page as the lamplight grew dim and said, quoting from the poem, "'Who can mistake great thoughts?' She gave me the volume afterwards, when we went west together, and I have it still. Its questions and conjectures were like a glimpse into the chaos of our only dimly developing inner life. The fascination of Festus was that of wonder, doubt, and dissent, with great outbursts of an overmastering faith sweeping over our minds as we read. Some of our friends thought it not quite safe reading, but we remember it as one of the inspirations of our workaday youth. We read books also that bore directly upon the condition of humanity in our time. 
The glory and shame of England was one of them, and it stirred us with a wonderful and painful interest. We followed travelers and explorers, Laird to Nineveh, and Stephens to Yucatan, and we were as fond of good story-books as any girls that live in these days of overflowing libraries. One book, a character picture from history, had a wide popularity in those days. It is a pity that it should be unfamiliar to modern girlhood. Where is Zenobia? The Queen of Palmyra walked among us, and held a lofty place among our ideals of heroic womanhood, never yet obliterated from admiring remembrance. We had the delight of reading Frederica Bremier's Home and Neighbors, when they were fresh from the fountains of her own heart, and some of us must not be blamed for feeling as if no tales of domestic life half so charming have been written since. Perhaps it is partly because the home life of Sweden is in itself so delightfully unique. We read George Barrow's Bible in Spain, and wandered with him among the gypsies to whom he seemed to belong. I have never forgotten a verse that this strange traveller picked up somewhere among the Zinkli. I'll joyfully labor both day and night to aid my unfortunate brothers, as a laundress tans her own face in the ray to cleanse the garments of others. It suggested a somewhat similar verse to my own mind. Why should not our washerwoman's work have its touch of poetry also? This thought flashed by like a ray of light that brightened my homely labor. The water is making my own hands white while I wash the robes of my neighbor. And how delighted we were with Mrs. Kirkland's A New Home, Who Will Follow, the first real Western book I ever read. Its genuine pioneer flavor was delicious, and moreover, it was a prophecy to Sarah, Emily, and myself, who were one day thankful enough to find an Auntie Parshall's dish kettle in a cabin on an Illinois prairie. So the pleasantly occupied years slipped on, I still nursing my purpose of a more systematic course of study, though I saw no near possibility of its fulfillment. It came in an unexpected way, as almost everything worth having does come. I could never have dreamed that I was going to meet my opportunity nearly or quite a thousand miles away on the banks of the Mississippi, and yet with that strange delightful consciousness of growth into a comprehension of oneself and of one's life that most young persons must occasionally have experienced, I often vaguely felt heaven's opening for my half-fledged wings to try themselves in. Things about me were good and enjoyable, but I could not quite rest in them. There was more for me to be, to do, and to know. I felt almost sure of the future than of the present. If the dream of the millennium which brightened the sunset somewhat somber close of the first ten years of my life had faded a little, out of the very roughnesses of the intervening road light had been kindled which made the end of the second ten years glow with enthusiastic hope. I had early been saved from a great mistake, for it is the greatest of mistakes to begin life with the expectation that it is going to be easy, or with the wish to have it so. What a world it would be if there were no hills to climb! Our powers were given us that we might conquer obstacles, and clear obstructions from the overgrown human path and grow strong by striving, led onward always by an invisible guide. Life to me, as I looked forward, was a bright blank of mystery, like the broad western tracts of our continent, which in the atlases of those days were the title of unexplored regions. It was to be penetrated, struggled through, and its difficulties were not greatly dreaded, for I had not lost the dream of doing, the first bound in the pursuing and I knew that there was no joy like the joy of pressing forward. End of chapter 11 Recording by Amelia Chanterotwong